Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. In the last decade, we've seen three massive leaks of data from offshore financial centres. These data dumps are called the Panama, Paradise and Pandora Papers. The papers showed how some of the world's wealthiest people launder illicitly earned money. It's still a mystery who leaked this information, but the data showed that the world's rich and powerful, including its wealthiest criminals, love using shell companies to hide their assets. And it's not just a few sunny Caribbean or Pacific islands that make these financial flows possible. It's also long-established corporate vehicles in places like the UK, where you can set up a limited company for as little as £12. In the recent Danske Bank scandal, €200 billion of suspicious transactions from the former Soviet Union flowed through the Estonian branch of Danske Bank between 2007 and 2015. In nearly all these flows, British limited companies and limited partnerships, owned by unknown entities, were critical in helping launder the money. In this episode of the New Money Review podcast, I'm delighted to welcome one of the world's leading experts on the nuts and bolts of money laundering. Graham Barrow has worked with many banks to help combat illicit money flows. He is also co-founder of a brilliant podcast called The Dark Money Files, which I spent a lot of time listening to last year. The UK, which is where I live, keeps promising to crack down on the abuse of shell companies to help combat corruption around the world. More cynical voices argue that London is so dependent on dark money, it has no real incentive to do this. So far, the argument is undoubtedly with the cynics. The government in the UK has so far failed to act on its promises to tighten up the rules on identifying the owners of companies. But you can listen to Graham for the next 30 minutes and make up your own mind. You can support the New Money Review podcast by becoming a patron. Details of how to do so are on our website, newmoneyreview.com, in the right margin. Even a few dollars, pounds or euros a month will help me grow the site and keep giving you access to the best thinkers in technology and finance. Graham, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Um, I'd be delighted to, Paul. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, So my name's Graham Barrow. I am a financial crime consultant. Um, I have various areas of work, quite hard to describe. I've worked lots with financial services companies to help them understand the threats they face from financial crime. I also work with a lot of journalists who investigate financial crime. And I work with uh, a whole bunch of uh, technology companies who are developing products to help the banks and the journalists to identify and fight financial crime. Okay, and thank you very much for that intro. You're also the um, co-host of a podcast called Dark Money Files, which uh, I'm a huge fan of. I started listening to it about a year ago, and I've been um, dipping into and out of it ever since. And it's been a it's been an eye opener for me as to how money launderers work, and it's almost a kind of encyclopedia and University of Money Laundering, if I can put it that way. Um, so um, you know, it's, it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. The the, the podcast for, for our, us, the Dark Money Files, has been a surprise. We didn't have a great strategy or plan. We did it, started three years ago, just as a kind of um, vanity project, really. Ray and I thought we'd have a chat over, over a microphone and it turned into a bit of a beast. But it's always lovely to hear that feedback. Thank you. Uh, okay, great. Well, perhaps I could start with a very general question. What is dark money? 
we defined it at the very outset as we didn't want to go down the route of talking about money laundering or dirty money. We we defined dark money as any money flowing through the financial system which is of uncertain provenance. So we're not saying it's definitively criminal or definitively corrupt, but what we're saying is that we should care about any money that that is working its way through the system where we don't really know where it's come from, and that's why we call it dark because um, because it's it we don't know you know too much about it. Okay, um, but I mean, if we look at the legal framework for the for the banking system, it, it's quite clear that there's a, you know, from the top down, um, mm. from the way that the the system is set up, uh, it's it's it aims at identifying, you know, legal money and and illicit money. I mean, there's a kind of fairly black and white um, distinction between the two. Well, well, I guess although I mean, a bank's reporting requirements I don't think are quite so distinct. So I mean, a bank has a reporting requirement where it has identified sufficient red flags to, to pass a threshold of suspicion, which is not, of course, the same as a legal threshold. So so basically, if, a, if you're a money laundering reporting officer and you've seen a transaction or a sequence of transactions that you cannot definitively say are legal, your job is to report it. And of course, there is no, um, you, you cannot draw a distinction of um, potential guilt there because you've only got sight of one part of the um of the transactions. So I think it's, you know, I'd take your point. And we didn't want to be constrained solely by the idea of just suspicious activity within banks. We wanted to talk about the whole kind of interesting subject that dark money represents. And we've wandered into art and auctions and all sorts of places since because they are interesting and worth talking yeah. about. Can, can we put the the, the the dark money economy into into some kind of um, figures? You know, how, how big is it as a percentage of the... Of the whole, well, you'll see lots of figures banded about, and I guess the one we see most is this. It came from a 2011 United Nations paper on on illicit money flows, which which estimated it at two between two and five percent of global gross domestic product. But because that's in some respects, it's a slightly artificial measurement because gross domestic product is trying to put a, a figure on a totality of an economy, and because dark money is is effectively a whole series of transactions. So I'm always a bit nervous about that. But I can say really without any fear of, um, you know, contradiction, I hope that it, a, a significant proportion of the money thrown through the system is generated through activities which are not obviously legitimate. Okay. Um, how, how big um, an issue is this now becoming? Obviously, in the last decade, we've seen some, you know, a lot of um, high profile stories relating to the the Panama leaks, the FinCEN files, the the Pandora Papers, more recently, mm. um, you know, what what, you, what would you say? Do you think it's becoming, you know, a, a far bigger topic than before? People are becoming, are people becoming more aware of it as a problem? I think they're definitely becoming more aware of it. It's it's very odd. We live in a world now, um, Paul, where, we, where everyone has access to information they didn't used to have. I mean, we, we are recording this at a time when our prime minister is going through some embarrassment because a leak has happened that's caused him to come rather shamefacedly to the House of Commons and apologise. And, and that's become indicative of the world we live in. So it's always hard to say, is it more or less than, or are we just finding out more? And you've just referenced Pandora Papers, FinCEN, Panama. And I had the great pleasure of working with journalists on most of those stories. And, you know, these were leaks. And so, so, so effectively, we're being able to shine a light where previously it wasn't shone. I, I mean, I do think it is 
it is a it is a significant problem throughout the world and it's not getting any easier, uh, particularly as power in certain places in the world is being more concentrated. So people have access to funds and the ability to move those funds for their own benefit, um, which is troubling. And it's it's damaging not just economies, but people's lives throughout the world. So it's, it is really important that these lights get shone on this dirty money, this dark money, because real people suffer in real ways because of people's ability to move it through the system. Right, and th- th- these are these are often um, money flows coming from countries with with very high levels of inequality, where yes. where people with with uh, control of natural resources can basically move the money around at will and uh, and and and, dis- and distribute it to places where it can't be touched. Yes, I, I, I if you go back to your school days, I don't remember doing doing semi permeable membranes and osmosis, but but if you think of um, this is a flow from areas of high concentrations of power um, to, to areas where the, the, it's more transparent, um, but it's more secure. So the great irony of most corruption is that the last place corrupt people want to keep their money is in the countries in which they generated it corruptly because it's full of other corrupt people. So there's this, there is this flow from, from um, particular types of economies and, and uh, autocracies to other more secure economies and more democratic environments. Yeah, and and I, I guess the the um, you know it, it's probably easy in, in in when looking at illicit money flows, money laundering to to point the fingers at certain countries. But in fact, I mean one of the one of the main um, takeaways I've had from listening to your podcast is that it's nowhere near as simple as that. And you have to look at the at many many different countries, in, including the ones that are enabling the. The movements of funds, as well yeah. as the, the the countries where the where the illicit funds are, um, are coming from. Absolutely, I mean, there's this, again this wonderful word symbiosis, which is the interdependence between different elements, and yeah. and it's it's symbiotic. It is. There's no point generating illicit funds if there aren't places that you can launder it, because yeah. the one thing's for sure is that you can't spend money if it's obviously illicit. That's not how the world works anymore. Yeah. So yeah, no, we are enablers of that criminality, and we can't point a finger without pointing three more of your hand back at yourself, because that's how pointing works um but i'd like to ask you in a, in a few minutes how you know what we can maybe do to address some of these problems but um w- when i started listening to your podcast the and and listening to the episodes about the danske bank um money laundering scandal which was on earth about a decade ago if i remember correctly yeah. one of the one of the things that struck me and made it made it really read like a, a spy thriller was the the fact that the 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 money was being moved through an estonian branch of, of, the, of the danish bank but then it was Using legal structures in a number of other different countries, which in turn were owned by entities elsewhere, uh, to to distribute the funds. And you know, could you give, could you perhaps give a, a brief recap of yes. know, the range the range of entities involved in that in that particular scheme? Well, there were about within Danske but Danske Bank in Estonia had a thing called the non-resident portfolio, which was effectively banking in Estonia for people who didn't live in Estonia. And there were about six and a half thousand companies in within that part of the bank, uh, the majority of which were being operated from former Soviet states. But the the companies, the structures they use, were by and large not Soviet or former Soviet country structures. A lot of them were UK, some from Cyprus, from New Zealand and others. Um, but they were incorporated. So let's take the UK, incorporated in the UK, being operated out of Moscow, um, but being 
controlled by other legal entities in places like the Marshall Islands and, as you say, banking in Estonia with a Danish bank. Now, you think that's five jurisdictions already that we've spoken about for just one of those companies. And that makes it, from a law enforcement point of view, almost impossible to properly investigate because that means five law enforcement um, working together who are not natural bedfellows. I mean, you know, the idea of the Moscow police and the City of London police working together on on a money laundering scam coming out of Moscow is pretty optimistic. Yeah. Um, what, um, so what is, the way, what is the best way to deal with schemes like this? Now, clearly, one of the, one of the potential problems here is that, as I think you and, and many other people have pointed out, the, the way that um, you know, the, the, you know, the, maybe the ease of incorporating companies or limited partnerships in the UK uh, and the lack of checks on the, on the information provided by, by people setting these entities yes. up is, part, is a big part of the problem. But, but how do we deal with it as a, as a global phenomenon? You can't, it's, you can't just stop one bit of it, right? You have to look at the whole thing. You, you do, but, but it, it's, it's the elephant problem. You know, how do you eat an elephant? And it is one bite at a time. So, so you know, we shouldn't not try and do something just because the whole thing is a big problem. The ease of incorporation in the UK is definitely an issue alongside the secrecy that other jurisdictions provide through their own legal entities. Now, that becomes an issue when you combine them into a into a kind of soup. And so you have a UK legal entity, which is controlled by another legal entity or a pair of legal entities in somewhere like the Marshall Islands. Now, in an instant, by doing that, you effectively create your UK company or turn it into an offshore company, because although it's located theoretically in the UK, it's controlled through an offshore entity. And the great thing is, we will allow, you know, um, uh, one or two, a pair of offshore entities to be the directors of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 companies. There's no limit to the amount of companies one set of directors can be the directors for. So you get, it's £12, Paul, to, to create a company in the UK is £12, and to create one in the Marshall Islands is £1,000. But it's a good trick, isn't it? Because you create a thousand in the UK and have them run by the one Marshallers company and you've just saved yourself an absolute fortune. And at the same time, there are lots of places in the world which see this UK company and think UK, low risk country, transparent business registry, it's all good. And yet, you look through it and you think, it's not a UK company at all. The only thing that's UK is its registration address. That's the only contact it has with us. Yeah. Um, now, so let's take the UK as an example. The, 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 um, the, you know, as a result of you know, your efforts, other people's efforts, uh, there, been some, there's been some progress at, on, com- on reforms of the way information is hmm. stored and checked at companies' house. You know, how far have we got in those uh, in those? Um, in, in that, that, you know, there's efforts. Nowhere near far enough is, is the first thing. Um, what we've done is raised a significant level of awareness that, that Companies House is desperately in need of reform. Companies House, 1843, it dates back to, and this hasn't really changed a lot. It cost fiver. In 1843, it cost £5 to register a company. It's now £12. You know, I'm not an expert on inflation, but I'm going to bet it's more than <laughs> that difference. Um that's been recognised. And the government went through a very significant consultation um, and put forward a series of proposals, which everyone agreed were, while not perfect, a, a huge step in the right direction. And sadly, that's just come to a halt. And, and we all understand we're living in the times of coronavirus. But this is not a difficult thing to legislate for. 
it needs resources, but the government have a consultation paper they can put into onto the statute book. And and pretty much everyone you talk to says, and they should. And for some reason, they are not finding the parliamentary time to do it. Alongside, also should be said, a proposal to create a beneficial ownership register for overseas ownership of UK property. Now, those two things would transform the landscape overnight. Um, and it would have massive benefits in the fight against financial crime. So it's it's just waiting for the government to put it on the statute books. And how much effect would that have if other countries around the world are not taking similar steps? I listened to one of your podcasts yesterday where you and your colleague Ray uh, described what's going on in the US and, and pointed out that uh, the company register there is not open access and it's not, yes. uh, not available for the public to search, unlike the UK register. Yeah, that's just so, one example. I think in, in uh, Europe as well, many many countries don't even have lots, an open access re- register. Lots. And, and, and I guess we should just be grateful for the, the movement in the right direction and keep chipping at it. So uh, lots, of, lots of countries will say, well, we have a highly regulated and verified register, which is private. The, the problem there is we have to take their word for it. And, you know, governments don't always tell us the truth. Um, we have a very public free to access register, which is full of, you know, an awful lot of really poor information. You know, the answer is to have a fully verified register that's open and accessible to the public. But, you know, if, if at least if the US institutes good levels of verification, that's a step in the right direction. But it's not helpful if that can only be viewed by what we would call obliged entities. Hmm. I, I, has the what what impact has the invention of cryptocurrency and the you know the, the likely introduction over the next few years of, of central bank digital currency, both of which are kind of traceable forms of money? What what impact could that have on on uh, crime prevention? Well, it's it's an interesting question because people will say, "Well, well Bitcoin's the it's the, it's what the dark web uses. It's the currency of criminality," and it's a weird one because. You know, people talk about Bitcoin and money laundering, but you'd, you'd have to be an idiot, really, to, to want to launder through through Bitcoin. Uh, just as an experiment, I, I, I risked a, a relatively small amount of my own money uh, into across four different crypt, uh, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin being one, Ethereum, uh, Solano, and Cardano. Um, I've lost... That's 30% of my money. wasn't very much, fortunately. But, 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 but there's a really serious point here, which is at the moment, crypto is highly volatile. Um, but it's also traceable. So if you're a criminal, you may well conduct your criminal actions with Bitcoin or some other, but, but mainly Bitcoin. But you will turn that into fear at the very first opportunity, because otherwise your criminality might, you might lose 30% of your proceeds simply yeah. because of the volatility of the market. So Yes, it does afford some privacy because they can be held in an e-wallet under a, well, it's effectively an encrypted code. But you can see everything that happens to it. So it is traceably private, which is a weird expression. Mm. That is what it is. Yeah, but do you think that could could signal a shift in the way we think about money and maybe make the job of investigators easier in future? Yes. Yes, because, I mean, if you think about it, people, I mean, I've had these conversations, people say, well, how's it worth anything? It's just a bit of digital code. And I say, well, how's a diamond worth anything? 
Mm. Why is a diamond valuable? Because we think it is. There's no intrinsic value to a diamond. And in fact, it's a manipulated market because because 90% of the world's diamonds don't see the market because they're hoarded to you know, control. So, I mean, part of it, there's a paradigm about people's understanding of, of where value comes from. I mean, even a £5 note or a £10 note is only valuable simply because there's a, there's a thing on it that says the Bank of England will honour it. But a yeah. piece of paper's got no value at all. So, you know... Things have value because of the effort it takes to get them. So, so gold has value because it takes effort. If you could just go into your garden and dig up three pounds of gold, it would be worth nothing because everyone could do it. And that's the same with crypto. And that's a problem because the effort in crypto involves energy and it's using huge amounts of the world's energy. So there's all sorts of issues. But I think the one thing that's not going to change is the fact it is there. The blockchain even more so because that can be used in so many different environments and, and, and is massively you know, um, useful. And, and I think it's got huge potential. But these things aren't going to go away. So we've got to work out how do we live with them? How do we regulate them? How do we stop criminals from, you know, overly abusing them? How do we turn them to our advantage? And that's a conversation we all need to have. And of course, you know, unlike digging gold up out of the ground, crypto is a much more complex subject to understand. And that's our the barrier at the moment, I think, is the complexity of understanding because it's just a harder thing to get your head around than I go and dig up some some, some ground and I find some gold and, and I sell it. Yeah. Uh, now, the, the people involved in large-scale money laundering often have the best advice, the best lawyers, the best accountants advising them. Do you have any feel for whether they are um, in getting involved in cryptocurrency or do they still prefer to use shell companies or yeah. if, they're, if they're drug dealers, you know, suitcases of $100 bills, which are the kind of well, traditional tools of money launderers? It's a really great question. I think one of the things that, that, that people may not always appreciate is that high-end crime and corruption is laundered by professional money launderers on behalf of the criminals and corrupts. So there are these two separate issues. One is, <clears throat> excuse me, having corrupt criminals or, or uh, corrupt politicians or, or organised criminals who will then hand it over to money launderers to launder. And I think actually c- crypto is very often part of the predicate offence which is the buying of the drugs. And then it is, as I say, turned into fiat and laundered as a fiat currency. And that is still massively done through organized networks of companies across many different jurisdictions that are linked through hidden ownership and control structures. I would say comfortably more than 90% of all of the money laundered throughout the world is still done through what you'd call the traditional method. Because frankly, if it ain't broke, you don't need to fix it. Yeah. Um, is there ever a solution to some of the problems you've described? I, I, I was thinking, um, as you were describing that, of um, an interview. I interviewed Oliver Bullough for the podcast a, a few months ago. And, you know, I, I read his great book called Moneyland. And he has some fantastic anecdotes, for example, of you know, going to the St. Kitts and Nevis corporate registry yeah. and trying to work out who the owners were the companies and they just laughed at him. But in, in his book, he makes lots of very important points. I think about the, 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 the emergence of new secrecy jurisdictions. So some US states have, have created laws where you can hide assets in a trust for generations with 200, 300 years. You know, mm. are we not just going around in circles and maybe clamping down in one place and while the, while the, while the money will just shift elsewhere? Um, possibly. I mean, I, I know Oliver actually very well. We, we probably have daily email contact. Um, he writes beautifully, and, and I couldn't agree with you more about Moneyland as a, as a fantastic entry for anyone interested in this world. Um, I think, 
you know, I, I do know Oliver well. I think one thing we we agree on is that that actually keep shining a light on these things. And I think there, I, I'm a great optimist, and I think we will win this. And the only answer is transparency. We we cannot rely on elites or or whatever to to do this for us. We've we've come away from that kind of benign patriarchy of of a hundred years ago. That you know, the world is now connected through the internet, social media. Transparency, ultimately, and, and, and you know, one of the first dominoes, I think, was here in the UK with, with the company's house transparency register. And that's not going to change anytime soon. And we're seeing other countries in some way or other adopt them. Yes, I'm, a, you know, South Dakota, I think, is the place with the trust and Delaware with the LLCs. But, but I mean, I think President Biden has indicated that this is not tenable. It, it is. We live in a world now where this is just not acceptable, and the power of public opinion is is significant. Again, we're seeing that currently in our political process, the the power of public opinion will ultimately decide whether Boris Johnson stays or goes, and not his MPs because they want to get those votes. Yeah, and that's why I, you know, I really love doing these sorts of podcast and other sorts of broadcast media because the more the message gets out there that this we are damaging people's lives all around the world by by allowing corrupt actors to steal their money and use it for those their own benefit and not for the schools and hospitals and roads and all the other things that that money should be being applied for we need to passionately be their advocates and make sure that change happens so, you know, this, every step forward in, in, in shining light on certain areas of activity can be built upon by people coming after through open source investigations, yes. data analysis and so on. Yes, yes. And and I mean, if we think back, I, I use this analogy often, but if you go back to the Industrial Revolution, you know, there was there was people hated the machines, they came in and smashed the machines, they were taking their livelihoods, that there was there is a painful process of change. And I think we're going through the kind of information revolution, that is somehow similar to the Industrial Revolution. And it's making lots of people very uncomfortable, because it's changing the power status of of everybody, but it's—I I do think it's inexorable, and that transparency will inevitably follow. Yeah. Uh, do you think banks have had a bit of a rough deal? Obviously, some banks have had very uh, heavy fines for for poor processes and, and being involved in yeah. money laundering scandals. But uh, last, uh, just at the end of end of last year, uh, a report came out from Transparency International pointing out that uh, electronic money institutions, which are fintech firms, which are not banks, are are increasingly you know, showing red flags for money laundering risk. Do you think that the, the, the playing field in terms of investigations and regulation has, has become a bit skewed and banks are getting some unfair treatment? Um, and I'm trying to get an unfair. I mean, I'm not a great fan. I'm not a great fan of fining. You know, I I I think there are there are better. I, I've always preferred it's a bit like my parenting. You know, you can either punish children or you can provide them with better options, and I prefer the latter. Um, but you know you have to understand that the criminals are not bothered about how they do it i mean the, you know, the thing about financial crime is that it's one of those risks the banks face that 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 they make money from the flow of those funds through the banks it's not like credit risk where if you lend to the wrong person they default the bank has lost money uh, um danske bank made about 150 million euro from the business in estonia so it is quite profitable i don't mean they do it deliberately but it is nevertheless profitable so they they deserve all the opprobrium that's heaped on them because yeah. you know they are making money from this and and therefore we should not allow that to happen um 
but the criminals are not bothered about how they move value through the system. They are just bothered in legitimizing their money, whether that's through an EMI, electronic money institution, or a, or a, an auction house, or whatever. Doesn't matter. So all of them need to have that spotlight shone on them to make sure they do everything to ensure they don't transfer criminal funds through the system. Okay. And now, you, in, we, at the beginning of the podcast, we talked a bit about the the, the Panama Papers, the, the Pandora Papers, the FinCEN files. Those were, were projects that uh, were worked on in secret for, for some time by a you know by a group of journalists, and, and you were involved in, in helping some of them. Um, what what you know more broadly can the, the average citizen do to to you know to to help the you know this 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 campaign, I suppose, and to move things forward? Yeah. I mean. You know, one is is always to be, you know, a little bit cynical about, you know, if we if we say if it's too good to be true, it, it almost certainly is. So, so we can all educating ourselves is probably the single most important thing, because you can't help in areas where you don't understand them. So, and one of the issues that I mean, as you said, I I've worked with hundreds of journalists, and one of the hardest things is actually being able to tell the story in a way that is consumable by the average person, because a lot of this is very complex. So so one of our challenges is to humanise what is sometimes quite a complex subject so that people can engage with it. And it's only through that engagement and understanding that we will create the momentum for change. And it's, it is a challenge because, because of money laundering. I mean, money laundering systems are deliberately built with complexity. Right. Uh, well, one. I mean, I just that made me think of a recent episode of your podcast where you you pointed out the surprising links you discovered between some of the entities involved in the in processing the um, or moving the ammonium nitrate that was yes. responsible for the 2020 Beirut blast and 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 some and some people involved in in large um, scale art purchases. You found some some commonalities there. So yes. so that that's perhaps a, an example of of, of the, the well the human costs in terms of the blast, but also the the fact that you can trace these things now through yes. data analysis. It's all connected and, and actually probably and that's a really good um, point, Paul, that, that that Beirut story has probably done more to raise public awareness about the the, the 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 company that bought that ammonium nitrate is connected to a whole host of other companies that have been involved in large-scale money laundering, in sanctions breaches, in funding of ISIS. And as you say, there are commonalities that link them to the sale of artworks and former members or members of Vladimir Putin's inner circle. You know, if ever you wanted evidence that there is um, a connected network for moving all sorts of criminal behaviour around the world system, it's, it's that story. Yeah, and, and people can read about that Beirut blast story and the and the entities involved on your LinkedIn profile. I think they can indeed, and and there is a as you say a podcast episode called British Shells and the Beirut Blast, which which summarises it to yeah. to yeah. Thank thank you very much, Graham. We've reached the end of the t- allotted time, but uh, I'd like to thank you um, you know very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. Just one last question as we as we you know set out on. 2022 what, what you know what are your key areas of work for this uh, coming year actually my, my key goal for this year was that I wanted to retire because I am I'm only 18 months away from my 70th birthday um, but actually one of the thing that I want to see this year is I will I really want to see the reform program for Cupboard's house implemented and I will devote as much energy as I can to to raising the profile of the need for that reform um, 
uh, it would be a great thing if by the end of this year that legislation had been laid before the House and, and enacted. Well, good luck with that. And thank you for, for raising uh, awareness of this important topic. Thank you so much for inviting me, Paul. Thank okay, you. thank you, Graham. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.